0: We are so glad that you're listening to Our Body Politic. If you have time, please consider leaving us a review on Apple Podcasts. It helps other listeners find us and we read them for your feedback. We'd also love you to join in financially supporting the show if you're able. You can find out more at ourbodypolitic.com slash donate. We are here for you, with you, and because of you. Thank you. This is Our Body Politic. I'm Farai Chidea. In October 2019, Shamani Gibson died just two weeks after giving birth to a baby boy. At only 30 years old, Gibson's death was one more fatality in a long epidemic of Black maternal mortality. Shawnee Benton Gibson, Shamani's mother, knows this problem well. She's a licensed clinician and author, and she was an outspoken reproductive justice advocate and activist long before the issue hit so close to home.
1: I never thought that this would happen to my family Yes. because I do reproductive justice right. work. Mm-hmm. But, you know, just also, why wouldn't it? We're right. black and brown. Right. You know, she's a woman. She was having a baby. Mm-hmm. So why would we think we would be exempt? Because we have the knowledge. Mm-hmm.
0: In the United States, black women pregnant and giving birth die at a rate three times that of white women. The film Aftershock, co-directed by Tanya Lewis-Lee and Paula Isolt, won a special jury award at the Sundance Film Festival and is now streaming on Hulu. The movie spotlights Shawnee Benton Gibson's story and other bereaved families as they grapple with loss and try to combat systemic medical racism dating back hundreds of years. Today, we're joined by Aftershock's director, Tanya Lewis-Lee, and one of the core subjects of the film, maternal health advocate, Shawnee Benton Gibson. Welcome, Shawnee. Thank you. And welcome, Tanya. Thank you, Farai. So let's dive into the numbers first. A 2016 survey found that almost half of white medical students surveyed held false beliefs about the biological differences in black patients, like the myth of fewer nerve endings, the myth of feeling less pain. Another study found that black babies are more likely to survive if they're cared for by a black doctor.
1: The ambulance came, it seems like forever, but it was only minutes, and I immediately started talking to them about what was happening. Like, she just had a C-section. I'm telling them the symptoms. You know, they kept asking me, they kept asking her mother, is she on any drugs or anything like that? Was she taking any drugs? Like, no, she doesn't take drugs. Next set of people come in.
0: Is she on drugs? Does she use drugs? And that was sound from both you, Shawnee, and also from Amari Maynard, who was Shamani's partner. What did you learn from that conversation with the EMTs taking your daughter as she was in crisis?
1: Oh, my gosh. My brain was on overdrive that day. Um, but what I was very present to in the moment is the shock of what was happening to Shamani and the level of insensitivity um, and focus on something that had nothing to do with what was happening in the moment. And I'm like, we have precious moments um, to address what her medical emergency is and um, her life is in the balance. And three, four times you're asking me the same question about whether she is using drugs. And I wish I could say they were concerned about medication she was on, but no, they were concerned about Illegal drug um, substance use, and if they knew anything about Shimani and our family, that's just not us. Um, I'm actually, <laughs> we don't talk about this a lot, but I'm I have 30 years of experience in addiction counseling, and you know, if that was something to share, I would have shared it right out the gate. And so I'm like, this is what their focus is when they see a black woman, when they see a black family in distress, when they come into a home in Brooklyn and Bed Stuy, the first thing they think of is that this person must be. Acting this way or demonstrating these symptoms or these behaviors because they're under the influence of illegal drugs. And it was just jarring to the spirit, but I'm like, I'm about the business of saving my daughter.
0: And Tanya, you know, the beginning of the documentary is so powerful. And so, I mean, the whole documentary is so powerful. We cover black maternal health and the losses of lives from this on a regular basis on this show. And I feel like you really were able to knit together an incredible focus on the disparities, but also on the passion and power of people like Shani who are able to bring this into focus. How did you choose what moments of this long journey to put into your film?
2: It was really important for us to show who Shimani was uh, as well as Amber. And we had the good fortune of having footage that uh, Shamani's sister, Jasmine, had shot because Jasmine, as an aspiring filmmaker, has documented a lot of their family's lives. So we had a treasure trove of footage of Shamani living her beautiful life. And we wanted to show who she was. We wanted to show who Amber was. And I think their spirit comes through, and the people who are left behind through Shawnee, through Amari, through, through Bruce we get to know the beauty of these women, the love that they had. And I often say that what I've learned from the film is that grief is love. And Mm. these families are activated by a love of the people they lost, a love of each other, a love of community, trying to make it better for all of us. And I think when you focus in on the love, the sadness and the trauma certainly is there, but... The love is strong, and and then you realize that when we work together, we can really make the world a better place.
0: I wonder if you can tell us, first Shawnee, and then Tanya, about how you have processed the connection to Omari and Bruce, the gentlemen who are the bereaved partners of the women whose losses are featured in this film. Obviously, Black maternal deaths are something that are considered a women's issue. But I think that this film really makes it clear that it's a human issue. It's, a, it's an issue that crosses genders. And, you know, Shawnee, you lost your daughter, but you also have this member of your family who is parenting your grandchild. And how do you process your connection to him and other men who are dealing with this loss?
1: Oh, that's such a beautiful question. And it's so deep that um, over the last couple of weeks, Omari and I have been talking about our relationship as it relates to other people's thoughts about our relationship and what it could be. This man is the father of my grandchildren, and he is forever family. Shimani mm-hmm. and Omari didn't get to um, marry in the sense that the world thinks of marriage, but he is forever going to be her partner, even if he manifests another relationship, which I hope he does. And we talk about that too. And so it's unfathomable to me not to be connected deeply to Omari. He co-created those beautiful babies that I get to be the grandparent for. And so I can't fathom not being connected to him in a deep way. And then to think about uh, Bruce as an additional family member, um, a chosen family member. It's just a perfect opportunity for Omari to be covered in a deep way, which I want him to have. And then also for Bruce to get extended support and coverage. And we've been brought together by spirit. So who am I to interfere with that? And also I'll say really quickly, we debunk the myths about Black men, Black men and their relationships, Black men and how they emote, Black men and how they care for family and partners. Um, And I love that we get to do that because there are so many false paradigms and narratives about brothers out there. So this film gives us an opportunity to make sure that that doesn't continue.
0: And Tanya, how did you knit together Bruce and Amari's story into this narrative of these women who've been lost? Amber Rose Isaac is the second woman whose life Lost is helping to anchor your inquiry in this film. And I've heard so many times from people that they're so grateful to see accurate representations of men who step into the role of primary caregiver through circumstances they didn't anticipate. And there are many men who step into that role, you know, without the extraordinary circumstances, but specifically, black men who step into the role of caring for children and caring for community? How did you center these men?
2: People have asked us the question, how did you find these men? As if we were, <laughs> we were looking to cast them and looking for these perfect Black men. And the truth is that we, we met Omari and Shawnee. Uh, Omari was two months into his grieving process and thanks to Shawnee, we were able to film at such an early time. And this is who Amari is. Uh, he was a man who was grappling with his grief, who obviously loved his partner, Shamani, very much. He had two children to raise. Uh, he was looking for healthy ways to work through his pain. Um, and that's one of the things I also really think is interesting with the film. Amari uh, works out. He paints and that, he talks a lot about... Beautiful painter. Beautiful painter. And, and that was really exercising his grief, a really healthy way of working through what he was going through. And also he was looking to reach out to other men who were going through similar situations that he was going through to offer support to them. And in that, when he had heard about Amber's passing, he reached out to Bruce uh, and because they form such a, a connection, he introduced us to Bruce and, and Bruce allowed us to follow him. And I think you, you said it, um, maternal health is not just about women's health, it's about uh, a family's health, it's about a community's health. And so I think people often think about maternal health, maternal mortality and morbidity as only impacting women but it impacts families, it impacts men, it ex- impacts extended families and full-on communities. And uh, Omari and Bruce um, are really showing us, just through their actions, uh, what that impact is. And then you also see in the film, Omari meets other men. Uh, there are, and, and Bruce, too, there, there are other men. There's a community. Omari at one point said, you know, we're a member of this messed-up fraternity that nobody wants yeah. to be a member of. Mm. And yet they have each other to be supportive of each other for themselves and for our extended community. And it's a beautiful thing.
0: That was Tanya Lewis-Lee, director of the film Aftershock with advocate and film subject Shawnee Benton-Gibson. Coming up next, more on the film Aftershock about the movement to save Black mothers' lives with advocate Shawnee Benton-Gibson and co-director Tanya Lewis-Lee. We also learn about Tanya's career and work on health and advocacy. Plus, Kimberly St. Julian Varnon and NYU law professor Melissa Murray discuss Brittany Griner's nine-year sentence in Russia and what it says about race, gender, and geopolitics. That's on Our Body Politic. Welcome back to Our Body Politic. We've been discussing the new documentary, Aftershock, co-directed by Tanya Lewis-Lee and Paula Iselt. The movie shines a light on the ongoing crisis around Black maternal mortality in the U.S. We're talking with co-director Tanya Lewis-Lee and advocate Shawnee Benton Gibson, who's featured in the documentary and lost her daughter, Shamani Gibson. Here's more of our conversation. So, Shawnee, the film sort of ends with a focus on the forward motion of this movement. What has happened just in your life around the move to actually preserve Black women's life as people who bear life and people who deserve to live long and healthy lives? (laughs) When the camera
1: stopped, my life continued. I've been in this work for a very long time, training and developing the Department of Health staff, doing Black maternal health work, As far as coaching and speaking, I run a support group for those who have fertility issues, have experienced miscarriages, stillbirth, um, different types of birth trauma. So that work continues. And of course, the work has been amplified. I'm big on partnership and having a collective impact. And that collective impact work means that I'm working with organizations and entities across the country so that we can mitigate eliminate these issues. The work was existing when Shimani was alive and she was a part of it. It continued when she transitioned and it will continue after this film. What what I love about the film is that it's a call to action. It's jarring, it's gut-wrenching, and it's also joyful and hopeful. And a lot of people have been reaching out. So I'm about the business of responding to all of the folks who have reached out to us um, when the trailer was first out. We were promoting the film to now that it's out, asking if we can speak, teach, co-create with them. And now that the film is out, I have more community, more and more people are asking what they can do and how they can be a part of that. And that's folks that identify as black, indigenous people of color and also those who identify as white that are wanting to be a part of this movement.
0: And I do want to, you know, I'm going to turn to you, Tanya, but I want to play a little bit from the doc of Shawnee speaking in Washington, D.C., in front of a big crowd uh, gathered to address this issue.
1: Black lives matter, but black wombs create black lives. And when we forget that, we forget our humanity. We want to make sure that our grandbabies, our children, have mothers to raise them and that fathers are not left to figure it out on their own. We must stop this. Black lives matter because black wombs matter. Black lives matter because black wombs matter. Black lives matter because black wombs matter, and a black womb created you.
0: Amen to all of that. A black (laughs) womb created me. And, um, you know, Um, I can't help but think about just the devastating reversals in reproductive justice that have been happening, which we cover on a routine basis on this show. And Tanya, you've been doing screenings in many places, and I saw one of them recently, and you talked about how kind of the white supremacy that underlay reproductive policies, including You know, the banning of black midwives, the persecution and prosecution of black midwives, which you cover in this documentary. All of these things that were not about the health and the well-being of birthing, you know, women or just society in general were institutionalized in order to create other structures of power or profit. So where do you go from here?
2: The conversation continues. I mean, I think the key is what what we wanted to do with the film is really create a conversation. We're in this situation in the United States where we have these high infant mortality rates, maternal mortality rates, and that's the marker of a health of a nation. And you have the black and indigenous populations that are dying at higher rates than the general population. But the general population is not doing that well either. And so we really have to examine what is the system that's set up? Why does it work the way that it does? I mean, often people will say, well, the system is broken. Uh, the system is not broken. The system is working the way it was set up to work. And so we need to reimagine what it could look like. I hope that with Aftershock and in this sort of post-Dobbs world, if you will, that we look at other industrialized nations that have better outcomes than we do, that have midwives integrated into women's health care. And I think... We need to really examine what that looks like. Uh, when you talk about the history that we cover in the film about midwives, it was the taking of the birthing industry out of the hands of women, putting it into the hands of men and into hospitals to control, to do experiment on, to learn from, but also take the economy from the women. So we need to really reexamine what we're doing. And I will say also that Abortion care uh, is a part of women's health care. And we need to make sure that the conversation is inclusive of all of it so that um, we're working for better outcomes. And voting matters. I keep saying this to everybody. Uh, I know we get very frustrated with our political system. It's a disaster right now. But we, the people, can't give up. And we have to keep out there fighting, voting, not only in our national elections, but in our local elections, because that's where all of this really happens.
0: Well, that's fantastic. And, and um, Shawnee, if there's anything you'd like to say before we let you go, please, please do say it.
1: Thank you so much. Just thinking about what Tanya stated. So when I was thinking about the title of this show, Our Body Politic, You know, I immediately thought about the political decisions that have been made that have embodied consequences for those whose voices are heard the least, if at all, for those who have been marginalized um, for more time than we've been alive. And even some of the decisions that we've made here in the United States, especially under the former administration, have impacts globally globally. And that our decisions here have impacted access to contraception, access to abortion, access to reproductive health and care. It just it incenses me and it also stirs me up to take action, to do something not just in the local community, but nationally and internationally. And when I think about uh, maternal mortality and morbidity with the new Supreme Court decision, Uh, We're going to have, unfortunately, more near-death and death experiences. They're taking us backwards rather than forwards. And the implications on our community, they're going to be devastating if we don't do something to shift this.
0: Shawnee and Tanya, thank you so much. Shawnee, we're going to say goodbye to you. Thank you for joining us. I really appreciate it.
1: My pleasure. Thank you for having me.
0: This is our body politic. That was advocate Shawnee Benton Gibson, who's featured in the new documentary Aftershock, co-directed by Paula Isild and Tanya Lewis-Lee. I continued my conversation with Tanya to hear more about her career and her work in media and health. So tell me how you became the person who did this film. You have had a really interesting career ranging from children's television development to this very brilliant, serious, heavy, but also just uplifting documentary. Give us a little walkthrough on how you got to this point. Back
2: in well, 2000, I wrote a book called Please, Baby, Please. Uh, and my children were young, and I was noticing that they were realizing they were Black in a white world, and there were not enough children's books, television programming that featured kids of color. And it was like, somebody should write another book and maybe I should do that. And so after Please Baby, Please came out, the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services, the Office of Minority Health, reached out to me and asked me to be a spokesperson for their infant mortality awareness raising program, Mm. A Healthy Baby Begins With You, here in the United States. So I had the opportunity to travel the country and learn about infant mortality, the causes. Uh, Each community has a different need or has different issues. And I had the chance to talk to groups of black women about how we access our healthiest lives. Because, of course, when you're talking about an infant's health, you're talking about a woman's health. In those conversations, often someone would tell me the story about someone who passed away from childbirth complications. I did a small film about the infant mortality crisis called Crisis in the Crib and had been thinking about how to tackle the U.S. maternal mortality crisis and... When these articles came out in the New York Times and ProPublica in about 2017, 2018, I thought to myself, now is the time I better hurry up and make this film. And so I met my co-director, Paula, in November of 2019. And she had a shared passion for maternal health. She had just finished directing her first film called 93 Queen she had some good chops as a as a director a way to tell a story that's intimate about a broader issue and we met and a week later we were like we were making this film
0: that's amazing yeah and you know you also now are working in producing supplements for people to try to shape their own health. You know, I've had COVID two and a half times. And a friend of mine who's a doctor has been telling me that every time you get COVID, this is a reason to still be safe, people. It can increase your long-term deleterious health outcomes like, you know, projected future diabetes, projected future XYZ. I don't want to be freaked out about it, but I also realize as someone who's a Black woman in her 50s, I have to take care of myself. So how did you go from also being someone who's documenting health crises to saying, I want to produce a product for it?
2: Yeah, well, I think really in my travels with that, campaign, I I discovered, too, that I had to take care of myself. I mean, health is everything. I'm in my 50s, and I know I should be indexing higher on all sorts of things. And I had to figure out for myself how to find a lifestyle that would support my health and wellness And part of that is talking to other women. For me, the supplements, creating Movita Organics was a way to continue that conversation with women because I'll be the first one to tell you no one vitamin is going to do it, but it can be a part of a healthy lifestyle.
0: Absolutely. You know, I mean, I've had a number of health crises in my family as various loved ones reach maturity, you know, elderhood. And I'm really thinking a lot about my elderhood. Like, how do I reach a healthy elderhood? And, you know, I've passed childbearing age. I'm on the other side of menopause. But as I think about the journey of Black women in particular, women of color, and women overall with health, there is this moment where we have to reckon with our bodies you know we have to reckon with the good the bad and the complicated of what it means to live in a women's body and to me watching your documentary even though i'm not someone who's had kids really felt like a bit of a reckoning with the trials and tribulations that women's bodies are asked to do in a society that doesn't support them. So how do you deal with the broader questions of things like Black maternal health and the more specific questions of how you treat yourself, Tanya?
2: Yeah, you know, it um, comes back to Audre Lorde that, quote, as a Black woman, taking care of yourself is self-preservation and political warfare. Exactly. And that's what it is. And to me, I think about it very seriously in those terms. First of all, I think as Black women living in our bodies, we're a threat to this society for some reason. On the one hand, as Helena Grant says in the film, our worth was what our womb could produce for the plantation. And now that we are claiming our own autonomy, that becomes threatening to society at large. The fact that we index higher um, in most uh, poor health outcomes is not because it's our fault. It's because of systems that are set up for us to be in those situations. So it is very difficult to overcome that, which is why I say we must be in conversation with each other and share with one another about how we overcome this, because our communities are only as strong as the women at the center of them.
0: I do worry that the arc of Black female wellness, Black female healing, women of color healing, is separated from the broader constructs of American society. A lot of times the constructs of women of color healing that I'm seeing are very much community-based, but the constructs of healing on a broader level seem to be based on what can you pay for, which is, it's not bad to pay for things like, you know, whether it's supplements or medical care, but that there's not as much of a community focus.
2: Well, I think that in order for us to have true healing, we have to hit it from every angle. And I think everybody has a role to play. And one doesn't exclude the other. And I think there's a spiritual piece that that also we need to reckon with. And I'm not talking about religion. I'm talking about really connecting in a spiritual sense to ourselves and then to each
0: other. Absolutely. So, Imagine that there's like a 14-year-old girl, a couple hundred years in the future, and you're saying this was what happened with maternal health and this is what we may change. What would you say to them? Hmm.
2: Uh, Well, I would say that this time right now feels like a real turning point. And if things work out the way I'd like... (laughs) I would say that people woke up and realized that uh, understanding the health and wellness of the most vulnerable, which happened to be Black and Indigenous people in the United States, um, that we went through a reckoning. People acknowledged and understood the sacrifices that were made uh, for this country to be what it was There were reparations paid back to Black people, Black women. Uh, And we also grappled with what birthing should really look like and decided that we needed to have women-centered birthing. And now, you know, we're in a space where the outcomes are better. Midwives are a regular thing. Young women start going to midwives when they start menstruating so that they understand what their bodies are, that, that we talk about menopause as, and, and we all understand what that is now. That's what I'd
0: hope. Well, I absolutely love that vision, Tanya. And I'm so grateful to you and to Shawnee and all the other people in the documentary Aftershock. So thank you.
2: Well, thank you, Farai, and I'm I'm grateful to you for being in conversation about about all of this. I think it's really important that we uh, we talk about our health, our wellness, and keep working to make for better outcomes in this country.
0: That was Tanya Lewis Lee, co-director of the new documentary Aftershock, and an advocate for women and infants' health. Coming up next, our weekly roundtable Sip in the Political Tea gets into Brittany Griner's nine-year sentence in Russia with Penn State Ph.D. history student Kimberly St. Julian Varnon and NYU law professor Melissa Murray. You're listening to Our Body Politic. Each week on the show, we bring you a roundtable called Sippin' the Political Tea. This week, we're talking about WNBA star Brittany Griner's conviction in Russia and the effort to bring her home. Joining me this week is Kimberly St. Julian Varnan, a Ph.D. student in history at the University of Pennsylvania. She specializes in race and blackness in Eastern Europe. Hi, Kimberly. Hi, Also joining us is Melissa Murray, the Frederick I. and Grace Stokes Professor of Law at New York University. Hi, Melissa. Hi, thanks for having me. This week, we're discussing the case of WNBA star Brittany Griner.
1: I plead guilty to my charges. I understand everything that's being said against me, the charges that are against me, and that is why I plead guilty. But I had no intent to break any Russian laws.
0: Now, Brittany Griner was found guilty by a Russian court for charges of drug smuggling and possession for carrying cannabis vape cartridges in her luggage. Kimberly, what do you make of the process surrounding Brittany Griner's arrest, trial and subsequent conviction for nine years? So the process that
3: we witnessed with Brittany Griner's entire ordeal in Russia so far is part and parcel of what we've seen towards other Russian cases, towards Americans, Paul Whelan, Trevor Reed, Mark Vogel. You tend to see a very small or minor situation become major, and then you see charges that are usually overcharged and more serious than the instance. And so, it was interesting about Brittany's case is that she acknowledged her guilt in Russian court. Trevor Reed did not do that, and Paul Whelan did not do that. They maintained their innocence throughout, which one could argue is why they got particularly severe sentences. But it's also notable in that in Russian court, acknowledging guilt doesn't actually change the process of the court proceedings.
0: And Melissa, as a skilled legal analyst and and law professor, what are you learning uh, from this process of observing the Russian judicial system through the lens of Brittany Griner's conviction? And what are you keeping
4: your eye on? Well, I think there are a lot of lessons to be learned from this international context. Why was Britney Griner in Russia in the first instance? It's largely because the WNBA has a shorter season. It pays less than other professional sports franchises. And for that reason, many of its players, including star players like Britney Griner, find themselves going to overseas markets where... They're paid much more than they would in the American context, and they have other perks. So, you know, one question we can ask ourselves is not simply about the sentence she's been given, but why she was in Russia in the first place.
0: Kimberly, you've tracked how Black people and other people of color were treated in the evacuations of the Ukraine and how the Russia-Ukraine war is affecting other geopolitics. So should we contextualize this arrest at this time, in any way, with Russia, Ukraine, or is it completely separate?
3: I think we cannot divorce Brittany's case from the war in Ukraine. For me, there is no you know coincidence that she was arrested literally one week before Russia invaded Ukraine. Russia knew it was going to invade Ukraine, it knew there would be an international response to its invasion in Ukraine, and now it has the most high-profile American it's had in decades in its custody. Usually this is an administrative offense, and so two years ago before this war, this is a ticket, this is a very large fine. But in March 2022, when Russia is already you know, committing war crimes in Ukraine, they have an American who they can use as leverage, and this is leverage that Russia has never had before against the United States.
0: I want to play a little bit more of Griner's statement before I turn back to you, Melissa.
3: I want to apologize to my teammates,
1: my club, Gimka, the fans in the city of Ecat, for my mistake that I made and the embarrassment that I brought onto them. I never meant to hurt anybody. I never meant to put in jeopardy the rest of population. I never meant to break any laws here.
0: Now, I dare say that a vape pen probably does not endanger the entire Russian population, but that was a political statement. And Melissa, if you were someone who was communicating with Brittany and her her wife and her family about what happens next, how do you make sense of how she played her cards to this date and what cards are left to be played?
4: Well, I, mean, I think this was an incredibly moving statement. She's sort of thinking about things, I believe, in the context of the American legal system where mental state and intent is actually incredibly important. And she's essentially saying this was not an intentional crime. At most, it was negligence. I didn't realize I wasn't supposed to have this material, but I had it. And I'm profoundly sorry for it. And I'd I'd like to move on. That's not enough in the Russian system. Like, you know, she has pled guilty, but the trial will continue nonetheless. It's also, I think, worth noting here. And again, this goes back to the American context. This is something of a disabilities rights issue. I mean, this is a person who plays at a very high level in professional sports. She has chronic pain, which she has talked about these cannabis items were prescribed by a physician ostensibly for the treatment of that chronic pain. And she's in another country playing and and therefore needs to recover. And and she's using this. And so, you know, part of this is really about how do we treat chronic pain of this sort and how that translates in international context in a world where many of our professionals, particularly sports professionals, are going to be incredibly mobile. I also want to
0: note, um, that there's been some really uh, gleefully destructive, I guess that's the only way I would put it, rhetoric. So after the death of Brianna Taylor, Greiner said she didn't want to have teams play the national anthem before WNBA games. She told the Arizona Republic, I don't mean that in any disrespect to our country. My dad was in Vietnam and a law officer for 30 years, I wanted to be a cop before basketball. I do have pride for my country. Now some people are trolling her for that stance. After she was sentenced, the conservative commentator Tommy Lauren tweeted, "On the bright side, B. Griner won't have to endure our national anthem for nine whole years. What a win for her, Melissa. And then Kimberly. What's the meta narrative here?"
4: Well, I mean, again, this is sort of a standard conservative trope that anyone who expresses or dissents against certain aspects of our national landscape are unpatriotic. They hate the country. She made very clear this wasn't necessarily about expressing derision for law enforcement. She comes from a family of law enforcement officers, but about this particular incident involving a Black woman like herself. Um, We've seen this happen in the context of Colin Kaepernick just simply expressing any kind of dissenting view with regard to the country's treatment of black and brown bodies is enough to render you anti-patriotic and someone who hates the country. And, you know, the conservative response here, I think, is retaliation for someone who has used her platform to bring attention to these issues And it also, I think, is about expressing retaliation to a league that has perhaps been far out in front of any other professional sports outfit in expressing concern for these social justice issues. I
3: completely agree with Professor Murray. Conservatives and Trumpists say, well, you know, Trump could have gotten her home ignoring the fact that Paul Whalen and Trevor Reed were arrested and detained during Trump's administration. But now that she's received this nine-year sentence, suddenly... All these stances come out saying she deserves this because she was practicing her First Amendment right as an American, but also, what's really disturbing is that the same people who were saying that Brittany deserves to be locked away in a penal colony for nine years are now saying that the FBI and the you know is a political institution and that the law isn't being applied you know for everyone equally. But this is just pure cynicism. Yeah.
0: You're listening to Sip in the Political Tea on Our Body Politic. I'm Farai Chidea. This week, we're doing a special roundtable on WNBA star Brittany Griner's conviction in Russia with Kimberly St. Julian Varnon, a Ph.D. student of history at the University of Pennsylvania with long experience on Russia and Ukraine, plus New York University law professor Melissa Murray. So I wanna go back and pull in the family angle a little bit. Here is Sherelle Greiner, uh, the wife of Brittany Greiner. I'm frustrated that 140 days have passed since my wife has been able to speak to me, to our family and to her friends. I'm frustrated that my wife is not going to get justice. And so Kimberly first, but both of you please weigh in here. What should we be keeping our eye on in trying to assess from the outside whether or not a Black gay woman is going to be treated with respect in Russian jails?
3: I think it's hard for a lot of Americans to kind of understand what Brittany is going through. Sherelle spoke earlier about how hard it was to see Brittany testifying from the iron cage that's in the courtroom or that Brittany is transported in a cage from her prison. Um, to the courtrooms about two and a half, three hours. And so that is foreign to our justice system. But in Russia, that's standard operating procedure. Every Russian goes through that. And so what I try to do is contextualize these things because Brittany is already in a tough situation, but now she is a part of this geopolitical struggle. And when we think about the optics of what it looks like for her, we have to remember also that Russia has always laundered its reputation through black suffering, particularly through the suffering of African-Americans at the hands of racism. And so I try to balance that out. And so what I'm looking for, in particular, in Russian state media, is how they talk about her. And so far, the Russian state media has tried to show that she's doing OK, that she's in a small cell with only two cellmates, that her cellmates... Um, have a conversational English and that they're trying to teach her Russian. So I think all of those are signaling to American audiences that they understand the value of the person that they have in detainment. And I think that's to her benefit. Brittany is worth entirely too much to Russia for anything to happen to her.
0: And Melissa, I can't help but think about the incredible amounts of physical conditioning that someone like Brittany Griner would normally be doing. It's not, I mean, like, hey, I can Netflix and chill all day, every day, and my body's not going to change but so much. <laughs> but that's not true for someone like Griner. You know, she's she's an ace, and now she's in a cage.
4: Yeah, I think you cannot overstate the impact that this will have on her professional longevity as a top flight player. Um, she's currently being housed in a cell that is equipped for people who have standard height. She is six foot nine, not to mention the fact that she isn't getting access to the kind of training and conditioning that she would have on a regular basis. So yes, we should not forget that. You know, She's in Russia in order to advance her career because she cannot do so because of massive pay inequities in the United States. And yet, this will leave her open to really having a hard time getting back on track as a professional athlete.
0: You know, let's go deeper into the possibility of the prisoner exchange. Most of the attention has focused on international arms dealer Victor Boot, who helped supply bloody conflicts in Africa, Latin America, and the Middle East. Uh, there's also been a mention of adding a convicted murderer to the trade. Kimberly? Does it weaken the U.S. internationally if the country makes a trade for Griner vape pen, for a global arms dealer? I'm of two minds. The first is, what kind of leverage
3: does Russia have and what could Russia ask for the longer they keep Britney Griner in custody? Because the Biden administration has already made overtures and they've also stated publicly that she is their highest priority, bringing her home. Russia knowing how much she's worth to the United States gives Russia a lot of leverage. Victor Boot is a convicted arms dealer, arms trafficker. He served over 10 years of his sentence in federal prison, but he's also aging. He's older, and the Russia he would go back to is not the Russia he came from. The connections and networks that he had before he was imprisoned are not those that he would have now, if those still exist. And so I think when people approach this question from national security, we have to keep that in mind too. Victor Bout of 2022 is not the Victor Boot of, of you know the year 2000. The problem is, if you trade someone Russia wants, such as Victor Boot, and they've been wanting him for years, does this engender the possibility that more Americans will be used in hostage diplomacy in Russia? And I think that's a legitimate concern. But we have to understand and think about, are Brittany and Paul worth Victor Boot? And does engaging with Russia in this way, does it make us weak, or does it give us more leverage in the future because they can no longer hold these two over us as leverage.
0: And Melissa, turning to you, I want to read something from Washington Post journalist Jason Rezaian, who was detained in Iran for 544 days. And he wrote an article in March, again, really prescient about Greiner's detention. In it, he says, time and time again, hostage... Takers are allowed to seize control of the narrative while hostages governments and employers are left flat footed. The U.S. government should make clear that if a detention of an American is found to be politically motivated, there will be swift and severe consequences. The current longstanding public approach of responding in a diplomatic and noncommittal tone, lest we further agitate the hostage taking states, actually ensures the opposite. It leaves our citizens languishing in prison, often for years, and signals to offend that they can get away with it. What do you make of the questions of the U.S.'s options, Melissa?
4: I think that's an incredibly astute observation that he's made, that part of what has compounded the trauma of all of this, both for Brittany Greiner and her family and everyone watching, is that the response has been a little flat-footed. This might be different if it weren't a Black queer woman professional athlete and instead were someone who was more high profile, Tom Brady, LeBron James. And you, you have to ask, is part of the flat-footed response on our end reflective of a society in which Black women are not held in the same esteem as some of the other members of society? And
0: Kimberly, I'm going to wrap up with you. Putin has been epically trolling the United States for quite a while now in a wide variety of ways in the past and in the present in terms of political administrations. He is an incredible strategist um, in, in terms of using the tools that he has to get what he wants. So knowing what you do about Russia, how do you make sense of this question of, of how to respond?
3: I'm glad you pointed out that Putin is a strategist. I've always pushed back against it. Like a Putin's a crazy person. It's like, no, that's not how this man operates and he's never operated that way. This is the first time really we've heard of a prisoner exchange before it happened. So that's a very big change. But also she was declared wrongfully detained earlier than all the other Americans who've been declared wrongfully detained. She had diplomatic access, access to the president, you know, the national security advisor who've spoken to her family months or even years earlier than other detained families. And I think that her case has forced a change in how the United States deals with these kind of situations. And all of this hinges upon how Britney's situation ends. How soon she gets home, how soon she's able to reintegrate into society. All of that's going to dictate how America's going to respond in the future. Do we say up front, we will not deal with this? You can talk tough to Russia, but if you engage in a prisoner exchange and that's it, and nothing else happens, Russia has no reason not to continually engage in hostage diplomacy. And so these are the questions that the Biden administration and future administrations are going to have to ask themselves. You know, what will we do to respond to hostage diplomacy? Because it's going to continually happen.
0: Well, I could keep going here, but we're going to have to wrap up. Kimberly, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. And Melissa, really grateful to have you. Thank you. Thank you for having me. That was Penn State PhD student Kimberly St. Julian Varnon and Melissa Murray, the Frederick I. and Grace Stokes professor of law at New York University, with the latest on WNBA player Brittany Griner. Thanks for listening to Our Body Politic. We're on the air each week and everywhere you listen to podcasts. Our Body Politic is produced by Diaspora Farms. I'm the executive producer and host, Farai Chidea. Nina Spensley is co-executive producer. Bianca Martin is our senior producer. Tracy Caldwell is our booking producer. Emily J. Daly and Steve Lack are our producers. Natina Bean and Emily Ho are our associate producers. Also, producer Teresa Carey contributed to this episode. Production and editing services are by Clean Cuts at Three Cs. Today's episode was produced with the help of Lauren Schild and engineered by Mike Gaylor and Archie Moore. This program is produced with support from the Ford Foundation, Craig Newmark Philanthropies, the Charles and Lynn Schusterman Family Philanthropies, Democracy Fund, the Harnish Foundation, Compton Foundation, the Heising-Simons Foundation, the Be Me Community, Katie McGrath and J.J. Abrams Family Foundation, and from generous contributions from listeners like you.